Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to Tab Storytellers. My name is Jen Ferrari. And before we begin, I just wanted to remind everyone that Tab stands for Teaching for Artistic Behavior, um, which is a pedagogy that is uh, choice based in nature. And there's three tenants that are the child is the artist, the classroom is the child's studio. And we ask the question, what do artists do to guide the learning that happens in the studio? And I wanted to thank everybody for joining us for Tab Storytellers. This podcast was established to promote dialogue among art teachers who seek best practices in contemporary art education and to advocate for TAB pedagogy and <clears throat> practice. This podcast, which we lovingly refer to as a TABcast, is published once a month and is a place to share our TAB stories with one another. These stories can come from TAB educators, administrators, community members, researchers, and many, many more sources. From how we found TAB to implementation in the classroom, to advocacy for your program, to dispelling myths about tab practice, we cover it all. For more information, you can navigate after this tabcast to teachingforartisticbehavior.org, and there you'll find information, inspiration, and incredibly helpful items such as teacher-created resources and access to an online community of tab educators called Mighty Networks. So usually at this point, I turn it to Abby, who uh, Abby Pato Bay, who is my co-host, but she is not with us at the moment um, for this episode. So what I would like to do is to introduce our guests tonight, and we have two of them. The first is uh, Lois Hetland, and the second is Ellen Winner. And I would love for them to just share a little bit about themselves, um, their current positions, and uh, what work they're working on, and then we can talk a little bit more into how it relates to tab. So welcome. Thank you. Lois, do you want to go first? You're you muted. Thank you, Ellen. <laughs> I'd be happy to go first. Hi, everybody. This is Lois Hetland. And I am a, a retired art educator and researcher. I retired from the Massachusetts College of Art, of art and Design in May of 2021. And since then, uh, I've been working on several research projects that have to do with kids learning about the science of climate change and then using artistic methods to communicate that information to a broader public. And it's been amazing, a lot of fun. Excellent, thank you so much. And Ellen. Okay, well, I um, <clears throat> spent my career teaching in the psychology department at Boston College, but um, in 1973, I walked into the doors of Project Zero and um, actually never left, even while I was teaching at Boston College. I've always been affiliated um, with Project Zero and um, very involved in a number of projects there, um, all having to do with the arts. Um, my background is that I was going to be an artist before I became a psychologist and <clears throat> decided not to become an artist for various reasons, but I've, everything I've done in psychology is looking at the psychology of art, particularly the psychology of children's art, and then the psychology of art education. And I'll just say one last thing. Right now, I've retired from Boston College, and I've come back full circle, and I'm spending my time studying the um, educational projects that have been developed over the years at Project Zero and trying to figure out what we can find out about their impact in schools on the ground. Yeah, I'm really excited about that because I know that there is a little bit that you're doing in the TAB community as well to ask questions about how people there are using the, the research that's come out of Project Zero. So that's really exciting. I want to talk more about that afterwards. If For those of you TAB teachers who are listening to this, if you don't use studio thinking, it would be great if you would say so. <laughs> I mean, if you would just return the survey because 
um, you know, it really helps us if we can get a large response rate. So right. we just want to know how many people, you know, answered the survey and whether you say yes or no, that's just doesn't what matter. you're doing. Just yeah, it doesn't know. matter. But please. Well, right now we've had a 10% response rate and we really would like a larger response rate. So please don't feel afraid to respond and say, no, I don't use it. We are offering a $100 gift card for your time that you can use to buy art supplies. For a raffle. Time. Raffle, yes. A raffle for one. A raffle, sorry. One person will win it. You know what we could do? At, uh, we always have show notes, and we could always put the link to that survey in the show notes if we great. think that that would help to reach more people. Oh, so there's idea. always that opportunity. That's great. So speaking of TAB, and since we're here on TAB Storytellers, um, I'm curious now what your connection to TAB is. Like, what is your story? I can I can start. Um, sure. So I didn't say earlier about my earlier work, but I was a, a teacher for uh, almost 20 years. And then I went to the Harvard Graduate School of Education to get my doctorate. And that's when I started working with Project Zero, which I did until 2010. Um, but when I started working full-time at MassArt in 2005. And in 2005, I met um, John Crow, who was one of my colleagues in the art education department. And he and I got to be very close. And he, of course, is one of the founders of TAB. And I said to him, geez, John, that's amazing. That's kind of the way I used to teach when I was teaching in a general classroom, you know, with stations and kids making choices and all of that stuff. And that's the British Integrated Day program. And that's kind of, you know, what we were learning. And he said, oh, really? Huh. <laughs> and, I mean, I, I think it was really interesting because it was that way of thinking about teaching among progressive educators was just sort of part of the zeitgeist. And people didn't necessarily know that it was, you know, a pedagogy that came from Britain and had particular features. Um, but it was definitely in it. And I think John and Kathy and Diane and Ellen and um, all, uh, Pauline, I mean, all those people, you know, really um, started TAB from, from a, this sense in general education that there was this need to have kids have choice. So that was, and then I got to know Diane Jake with well. Um, she worked with us in uh, as a supervisor and whatever. So, and I went out to Colorado with John and did something in the in the Denver um, in the Colorado tab group. And then I actually uh, Diane was looking for a home for the tab institute, and I said, "Oh well, Mass Art should host that." So I went and talked with them about that, and then we got that going at at that. That was all I had to do. I mean, that had to do with the tab institute was just go somebody and say, you know, this would be a really good idea. After that, all the hard work was theirs, but it has been a great, um, great venue for everybody that it's happening at MassArt and that mm -hmm. the TAP people run it so well. Yes, and it's still going strong as well. There's, it's uh, running again this summer in July, and I'm actually going to be there. I'm really, really excited. It's my first in-person one, so. Oh, it's so great, great. It's a great uh, program for those that haven't been able to go. I highly recommend. So, and then I guess I should also say that during um, the writing of Studio Thinking from the start, um, both mm -hmm. Ellen and I got more acquainted with uh, TAB teachers and TAB teaching because um, Jill Hogan, 
um, went out and did quite a bit of research and Di and we were writing with Diane. So that just became, uh, you know, a bigger feature of, um, uh, we started looking more at the connections between studio thinking and tap teaching. And I'll have to say that um, Lois and Diane introduced me to tab. I really didn't know about it until a few years ago. Um, because remember, I'm not really in the field of art education. I was in developmental psychology. So I was very glad and interested to be introduced to it. And I went and visited a number of tab classrooms when we were writing our book, Studio Thinking from the Start, um, and was very impressed. I mean, I, I see when it's done well, it's really great. Um, and the kids were really making uh, engaged and showing a lot of initiative rather than saying, what, what am I supposed to be doing? Mm -hmm. That was that was uh, or twirling on their stools because they didn't want to do what right. we, they were being asked to do. Right. Well, we talk a lot on here. I'm not. I don't know how familiar you are with the other episodes that we've had, but we talk a lot about um, how when tab is done really well, it is very meaningful for the teacher, the students, the community. But many of us, when we started out, did not do tab well, or we, you know, had we hear of experiences about like when it's done well or not. And by that, I mean that like, there's always room for improvement, but there's ways to approach choice that are like helpful in engaging the learners. Whereas a lot of people think, and Ellen, I, um, from many of your presentations I've seen or heard, and then from the book, the, your recent book, An Uneasy Guest in the Schoolhouse, um, you talk a lot about how it's viewed from the outside as this like laissez-faire, like whatever, anything is, you know, we do whatever, um, but it's really not like that. And that's what I talk when I say like there's bad, like bad ways to approach tab. That is not a successful way. But when you do start to apply these frameworks like studio thinking, um, which I'd love to ask you more about too and have you share with us, um, it really does become a successful way to engage the kids. Um, so now I'm curious if you wanted to share a little bit about either you know the the work you've done with project zero or where like studio thinking came from that shall i say something about that yeah why don't you take that one okay. ellen and i'll jump in okay well lois and i go back a long way and um we first started doing research together before the in about the late 1990s and our research project was called reviewing the arts and education project and we call it reap some of you may have heard of it. We made ourselves exceedingly unpopular to a lot of people because we reviewed the literature on uh, testing the idea that arts education improved students' test scores, which means in their verbal and mathematical skills, and also improved their academic grades, which also tends to mean verbal and mathematical things. So um, we ended up doing a large series of large meta-analyses, pooling studies together, and what we ended up concluding was that there was not a lot of evidence that arts education improved test scores and grades. And we said, and why should it? Because arts education is, the arts are not about verbal and mathematical things. And so there's actually no reason to expect that these, uh, that learning to paint, learning to draw, et cetera, should improve academic standing. And some people- And even if it did. And even, even if, if it, it- Even if it did, it's like, um... You would need so much greater a dose of the arts. You know, it's like mm -hmm. you would have to have a totally arts-infused school, and that anyway. The you whole mean forty-five minutes a week is not enough? That's what like, I mean. Uh, 
So, and then we said, what is arts education all about anyway? And we were so unpopular at the time, we decided we better do something po positive. And let's, we said, let's figure out what the arts really do teach, what kind of thinking they teach. So that if we wanted to say, wanted to look at the positive outcomes of arts education, we could see whether those outcomes were actually improved. And that's what led to our studio thinking work. We just decided to observe what we consider to be high quality art classes in the visual arts. We could have done it in other art forms. And some of my students have extended it to theater and uh, music, but we did it in the visual arts. And we just observed for one year and videotaped and interviewed in visual arts classes at the Walnut Hill School for the Arts and at the um, Boston Arts Academy. And then we spent another year looking at the videotapes and coding them and trying to figure out what kind of thinking was being taught. And that's how we came up with our framework of the different habits of mind that we saw being taught either explicitly or implicitly. And we said, okay, look, the arts don't improve test scores in verbal and mathematical areas, but look what they are teaching kids. They're teaching them to envision as they're planning something, to reflect on what they're doing, to stretch and muck around, stretch and explore, et cetera. All of our habits of mind, we think are the habits of mind that artists use. And that's what good art teaching instills. And it has nothing to do with what standardized test scores teach. It's so funny too, because I mean, having been a classroom teacher and in complete obscurity, then I went from complete obscurity to people hating me and I, you know, I, was, I was notorious because I had done this reap work with Ellen. And um, then when we did the studio thinking, it was like, oh, it's the happy theory. Now everybody likes us again. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was very odd to ride around on this roller coaster of approval and disapproval. And I just have to say, it really taught me that you, know, you don't worry about what people think of your stuff. You just do your stuff as well as you can and put it out there and see if anything catches fire. And studio thinking really did catch fire. It really has right. been, it had legs and teachers have, teachers are the ones who give it legs. They really saw the value of it and have used it. I don't think our teachers were that upset with us because they never, they were tired of being, of being asked to show that the arts raised test scores. But, well, certainly um, art, artists were not upset with artists us. were not upset either. Who was <laughs> upset? It was it was people in the funding world and people in the art education research world that had spent a lot of, that had already written a lot of articles showing on the basis of correlation rather than causal research that the arts improved test scores. People like James Catterall, the late James Catterall would be an example. So, but artists and art teachers were not upset. It was researchers and funders. You're, you're talking more about the, uh, the reap work that you had done, right? Right. Oh, because Lois was talking yeah. about being hated. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Before being well, loved. <laughs> yes. Before being loved. Right. Well, I know for me, when I, so in my experience as an art teacher, I had always felt that there were these things that we were teaching that were outside of just like the technique and the skill and all of that. But before I had known about studio thinking, um, it was hard for me, I think, to to frame what I wanted to do with my kids. Cause I was, before I was a tab teacher, I was, you know, a traditional where I kind of like led the instruction and we had some choice in the projects, but there wasn't a lot. But what I thought I was teaching was 
not what I went into teaching to do. Like, if that makes any sense, like I went into teaching art because I wanted to have students be able to have a place to express themselves and be creative and to gain skills that they could then, you know, use at some point in their life because I knew the importance of creativity. Um, but like, I didn't know, I didn't have the language or know how to structure something that I thought would make sense in order to promote that and to share that with students. So then when I found out about studio thinking and the studio habits of mind, I thought this is it. Like, this is what I had always wanted to impart to kids. And it gave me a language and a structure that then I could use to help teach them what it is to be an artist and how do you can take these skills out into the world. And that's why I really have always latched onto them as a teacher is because I think that they are applicable. And I've, we, you already know about this about me because we have working on the survey and everything, but I am very adamant that like the studio habits are applicable to all the other things that they do the kids out in the world in their other classes that they take you know that it's everything they do I mean we talk about how um developing craft you can do that when you play sports or if you play an instrument I mean there the practicing of something is not just like an art skill it applies to other things so I was really happy when I discovered it because that's what happened I didn't hear about it when I was the grad student or in my you know, prepper, a teacher prep program. It was something I fell onto. Like I just happened to um, hear about it through tab mostly because the two are linked mm -hmm. pretty um, tightly together. And you know, I think that's interesting about the language because the lang the fact of putting language to this, it's like you know, as soon as you do it, one of my fears was that people would look at it and go, "Well, yeah, duh." You know, so what? <laughs> um, but but in fact, I think it it has been appreciated just because uh, art teachers didn't have the language to frame the things that they intuitively knew they were doing. And so they right. felt passionately that they were doing something important, and yet they keep kept being relegated to thinking that they were teaching craft, you know, how to mm -hmm. use a how to mix colors or how to, you know, whatever. And I'm not trying to belittle those things. Those things are are great but they're mm -hmm. not you know they're it, it, if we we make this pie wheel right and and the developed craft is one eighth of it so it's like there's a whole lot underneath that use yeah. of the paintbrush or that use of um you know the, the whatever it is that your tools are so i i think but the language is important not just for uh giving the kids language of course that's like huge but it's also important for talking to administrators, for talking to mm -hmm. school boards, for talking to your colleagues, um, for talking to parents. Um, so it be, it's a language that's really general enough that people can understand the, the general importance of engaging and persisting or of observing or of um, envisioning or I mean, understand art world is the one that I think people might not understand as much. And I'm actually thinking of writing an article about how I would now call that connecting if I were doing the habits now, so. And what I would call yeah. it is connecting what you're doing in school with what artists do. So, so that there's no such thing as school art. There's being an authentic mm. artist. But that mm. may be similar to what 
lowest means by connecting. Yeah. Well, we, Ellen and yeah. I haven't talked about this a lot yet, but if I do end up writing this article, you can bet we will. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I wanted to say that it reminds me a little, the idea that teachers would say, this is what I'm already doing, what's new here, it reminds, and then you're saying it gave them a language and a framework and a way of justifying to people that said, what's, what's, why do we need arts education? It reminds me a little bit of multiple intelligences theory, because teachers already intuitively knew that they were, that kids had very different strengths and weaknesses. Uh, but the theory, the framework actually gave them something to hang that intuition on. Yeah, I think those the two um, frameworks are very similar in the fact that, um, you know, they're of much more interest practically in the field than they are among um, fellow researchers. So I mentioned a little bit about how I use them together, Tab and the Shalm or the Studio Habits of Mind. What do you think, this was one of the questions that we had posed, what do you think sets them apart from each other? Because they work so well together, but what do you think makes each of them individually? Could it be something like what you just finished saying, which is that tab by itself is very is completely open, and you need some kind of framework, or it helps to have some kind of framework to work within when you're giving kids free choice. And this is a framework that can guide them in thinking about what it is they want to do for their projects. Yeah, I think I, I think that too. I think, you know, HAB is a pedagogy. It it gives you lots of techniques for how to teach so that kids can have choice and that kids can, you know, begin to um, engage deeply with between themselves and 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 materials. Um, but studio habits is is more of it guides you towards purpose. It's like, what is all of this engaging with art materials for? What does it develop in a human being? How, what, how are we creating a mind by all of this doing? And, you know, I think that that's, that's this big difference is that studio habits is a, a way to frame and where we're going. So in a sense, it's a map or it's an orientation device, a compass, um, whereas TAB is a set of practices that teachers can enact to engage students deeply in making personal choice and committing to their artworks and their own ideas. One thing that I noticed that a lot of the teachers in our survey wrote is that they use, they use um, the, the habits for thinking about assessment. Yes. Which makes sense when you think mm -hmm. about, you know, this idea of it being a goal. Right. You know, it's like, here's That's what we're doing right. now. How are we right. doing? Exactly. What, what are we creating as we're doing that? Let's right. look, let's analyze it. I think it's really a reflective tool. And, you know, we, it started out, we started out thinking of it as a reflective tool for teachers. So when teachers were starting, we would say, well, analyze your own practice, either your own art practice or your own teaching practice you know, using the studio habits of mind, look, look for where they show up in when you're genuinely making a work of art, you know, where do you start? Do you start in the same place all the time? Do you do you envision sometimes? How do you do that? Mm -hmm. Or do you look at others work and then get an idea from, or do you observe something 
around you in nature? Or do you think about something that you really want to say and then look mm -hmm. for ways to say it? And, you know, so you could just hear in, in that, you know, there was envision, there was understand art world, there was observe, there was express, there was develop craft. So we start in all different places. So look at that for yourself and see what kinds of examples you can find of about what your trajectory is as you're making something. And then you could also mm -hmm. look at a, a particular unit of study that you do, a curriculum or a project, and say, okay, so what am I starting with here? Um, am I uh, asking the kids to develop craft? I was remembering this one man who was teaching a bunch of high school kids who didn't want to be in art, and he was having them do a project that he called a linotype project. It was, you know, they were going to make a, a, a print and uh, by doing a cut in linoleum. And uh, he said, you know, he, he, had, he said, you know, you can do anything you want. And they went and they got SpongeBob and Tweety Bird and just copied it and made it. And he was so disappointed. So we got out the studio habits of mind and went through the wheel. And he realized that he didn't do any envisioning with them and that he mm -hmm. just assumed that they would envision, but they didn't know what envisioning was. So the mm -hmm. next project, he went through a whole bunch of envisioning of, it was a, a, a box that they were creating that was gonna represent themselves on the inside and the outside, or it was a vessel or something like that. And he got them thinking all about different, you know, who they were on the outside and who they were on the inside and how you might represent that and all sorts of things. And the products just came out amazingly different and rich mm -hmm. and, personal. And so I, I think that that's really a, um, a strength of, of the framework is that you can, you can begin to look at what it is you are doing and what you intend to do. And if it's working or not working, and then which habit do you want to emphasize more? And what mm -hmm. would you do in order to emphasize that habit more? Yeah. I would like to add to that, that I I think one of the things that's coming out in what you're saying is that having the habits of mind in mind is very good for um, triggering kids to reflect on their mm -hmm. practice, to reflect on how they're thinking, to do metacognition. Mm -hmm. Yes, I actually have a student write me because it's the end of the year for me. I still have a day and a half um, <laughs> this coming week, <laughs> but um, I had a student write me a thank you note she's in fifth grade and she mentioned in her note that we do this thing where I teach them smart goals and throughout the years they're with me we study the habits we talk about how artists use them and why they do the things they do and she mentioned in her thank you note that the smart goals that I helped them set based on the studio habits that was so useful for her that she wants to continue to set smart goals for herself moving forward, not just in art. And so the other thing I wanted to mention, besides it being, I think, highly valuable as um, for the for the language portion of it, which I mentioned already, it helped to do a couple of things for me as a teacher in terms of assessment. When I moved from high school to elementary, I moved from like 115 kids to 600. Right. So how do you assess 600 different things that are happening in a tab classroom? Because in a tab classroom, if the child's the artist, they're doing their thing. And that means you have however many individuals doing different things. So how do you then assess that? 
Um, and when I thought about it, the studio habits, it was perfect because every artist practices those habits, but they don't do the same thing, you know? So it made sense to me to assess based on that framework as opposed to some arbitrary application of technique that some kids are using and some kids aren't. But then the other thing is that I think also the habits make the invisible visible to kids. And when you're talking about it and you have that language that you're using, it helps them to, and not just the kids, but also when you're talking to administrators and parents and you are able to make what they're doing and you can talk about it and make it visible what they're doing using that language. You can talk through the process because the process is very difficult to like pinpoint exactly what's going on if you don't have that um, to be able to express what it is that they're doing. So I found it very useful in that way too. Um, so I just wanted to throw that in there as a practicing teacher who's using it. But yeah, and I actually I have very exciting news. Uh, Abby is with us. Oh, good. <laughs> so I'm gonna let I'm gonna let her in, um, but she should be here just any second. Um, but actually, one of the next things that we were going to ask about, I think that um, she would be interested in this as well, since she's since she is starting a new position. I think she would be very interested in this um, next question that I was going to ask you. So there she is. Hi, Abby. Hi, Abby. Hello. <laughs> ah, when you start, like this is like first real week of summer where I'm not doing a whole bunch of things, and so I've just forgotten life existed. So, and you've been I, busy. Yes, just a little bit. So. Um, I was sharing with our guests that you were starting a new position soon and that the next question would be of interest to you as well in your new position. Is this with Connie Stewart, Abby, that you're going to be working? I am going to be working with Connie Stewart. Um, she's, um, am I, can you guys hear me? My, he keeps saying my connection's unstable. Yes, we can hear you. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I'm going to get to be work with Donna Goodwin. Um, and I think Connie's staying on as uh, adjunct faculty. Oh, and nice. So I was still I'm so, excited. Yeah. I, uh, awesome. I also wanted to just say, I mean, I just want to say thanks because uh, both Lo Alice, um, <laughs> Lois and Ellen, I'm putting your name together. Um, your, your work in your, uh, in your professional work, in, uh, Ellen, especially your uneasy guest in the schoolhouse, um, were really timely in my research and so um and Lois you were part of my research and so thank you for that so I'm thank you for being successful with your, your own work that's a great so, book everybody yes Lois read Absolutely. every word of it and made it better <laughs> that is true yes I found it really helpful too just to kind of place um well not just like my pedagogy which is to have pedagogy that I associate with but it helps it helped to also like give me like a background from like where it came and what came before it I found that very useful um in you know my own practice and then and also the writing that I've done too so highly recommend that book an uneasy guest in the schoolhouse um for people okay the question what's the question yes so <laughs> it so sometimes when people are finding tab um they that's an alone a lot for people that are just um identifying that this is something that they want to try and do 
Um, so what recommendations do you have for TAB teachers or people who are new to TAB that are just getting started and they want to bring the studio habits into their, um, their practice? Well, I think I started to talk about that a little. I, the first thing I would do is take a step back and analyze your own practice, either your own art making practice or your own classroom practice, some, some projects that you do or how things are going, you know, just take some time and think your way through, you know, like describe what it is that goes on in your classroom and then look at it and see if you can see the relevance of different habits of mind to it. Um, also, you know, we don't talk that much about the studio structures, but there's sort of a meta um, structure for, and tab sort of fits within it. So, you know, there is a demonstration lecture. It's just that it's short and it's on the rug and, and then they go off to their students at work at all different tables where they're making choices. And then there are critiques where of various kinds could be table critiques or kids talking to other kids or you know gathering again on the rug and sharing their projects, um, whatever. And then there are exhibitions, and some of those exhibitions are, you know, the fact that they all include artist statements is, I, I think, quite wonderful. So that's a different aspect of studio thinking that sometimes we forget to put around tab, but it fits around tab just as well as it fits around lots and lots of other pedagogies. Um, but so that's what I would say first is that it's important to get to understand studio habits within you, within the way you think. So to tie it to the things that you um, do, uh, either as a teacher or as an artist or both. And from there, I think you could um, you could look at something and say, oh, this this um, the way that I've set up my textiles station that really emphasizes envisioning, because I want them, you know, before they cut, I want them to have an idea, or you know, or maybe it's really emphasizing uh, caring for materials, studio practice. Uh, develop craft studio practice, or maybe I've really put down some um, some examples of different artists who are using different textile techniques. So I'm really emphasizing understand art world, or I'm really emphasizing stretch and explore. I'm just putting the stuff out there, and I just want them to fool around and see what they do. It's like, but identify what they're what you are emphasizing at your uh, station, and then make that visible to the kids make that one thing visible to the kids. And as they get more comfortable with that and things start to open up more, then you can bring in the other studio habits. And I would also like to say that I think by looking at the examples in, studio, in the studio thinking book, the examples of what teachers are talking, are doing to emphasize particular habits, because there are examples in each chapter. I think if you read the examples and then say, is this anything like what I do? Can I connect this to any projects that I've assigned or that I would like to assign? It just makes it concrete rather than thinking about the abstract definition of each habit to look at the examples of practice that we have. The other thing I think that is such a natural connection that TAB teachers can make very quickly is that TAB teachers ask students to write um, artist statements. And that is reflect, you know, that is just doing uh, question and explain, and it's also doing evaluate. So it's doing both parts of the reflection habit. Um, and so if you're asking kids to, you know, when they're doing a piece 
to start to talk about that piece and how they made it and what it means to them and why they like it and why they don't like it and what they do next time and how it's like what they've done before and different from what they, you know, all of that kind of stuff is part of reflect. So the reflect habit, um, maybe reflect and stretch and explore, those might be the two like beginning habits for a lot of tab teachers. I mean, a lot of times I think about observe and envision as the first habits that we might get into. But I do think that with tab, uh, reflect and studio habits or and stretch and explore might be mm -hmm. natural. And then the next one that I would really urge tab teachers to think hard about is engage and persist. Because the, the engage part is all about finding that thing that means enough to you that you're going to be able to stick with it through multiple drafts and through, you know, trying things and playing around and coming, reflecting and coming back and coming back and hitting bumps and not letting them stop you. Um, that's so engagement is what uh, keeps you persisting. And I, th I think that that is what keeps tab teachers, we were talking earlier about uh, tab that works and tab that is kind of letting down the team. <laughs> and um, I, I do think that, you know, when everything comes out looking like a toilet paper roll, you really haven't pushed enough on the persistence part. You know, you want these kids to be looking at their work and evaluating it and assessing it and then doing another draft or, you know, doesn't have to be another draft of that piece, but you know you want them moving from this effort that they made to the next effort. And I would just like to put in a pitch for observe because I think that getting kids to look really closely may be a way of getting them more engaged. Because if they if they're doing a kind of quick work that isn't really uh, in very uh, worked out, they're not very engaged. And if you get them to look really closely at what they're doing and think about how it could be elaborated on getting them to see in new ways might be a real way to get them to realize that they can go further and deeper. John Crow used to talk about a little ant that was walking over the surface of the thing that they were looking at and trying mm -hmm. to move their pencil with the little ant's feet. I love that. Isn't they that great? Their eyes with it. Yeah. That's incredible that he said, I didn't know that, but every time I ever did that, like con like contoured line drawing right in college i used to think of like a little insect just walking really really slowly because that's otherwise i would just totally lose interest so i would have to imagine something like that so that's that's crazy i didn't know that yeah but you, it's interesting because it sounds like a lot of the connection that you're thinking you know tab teachers can make are, are all these organic connections that are happening like in the moment almost like sometimes what is like authentic is almost like the best way to connect it to what they're doing. Oh yeah. Um, the kids. Yeah. Yeah. I think you really mm -hmm. look at what they are doing and then you name it with the studio habits that are working. And then right. you think, okay, one of two things happens. You say, how could I help them to do that more? Or let's look at the ones they're not doing and think about, how those fit in and whether we want them to be bringing those into their work and if so how could we do that so either way you're starting with what the kids are doing and then you're either doing it more or you're looking at the gaps and saying how can i bring the gap in 
What about showing them works of art uh, by by non by non kids? And mm. I don't think we're not asking kids to copy, but we're asking kids to look and see examples of what adult artists have done that might show um, like multiple giraffes would show engagement or um, very expressive colors would show expressivity. Um, I think it might um, open up their eyes and widen their perspectives and um, get them also again to think about the connection between what they're doing and what adult artists do. I think the um, Art 21 videos are still mm -hmm. a really terrific resource. And because you've got artists talking about their own practice and their own work in their own studios, in their own words. And so if you have a practice of just showing, you know, a two minute or a three minute clip from an Art 21 segment and talking about what studio habits is this artist using? And, um, oh, did you see how this person was envisioning? Or did you see how this person was stretching and exploring? What were they doing? And, and it's like, well, why don't you think about that today as you're doing your work? I mean, it can be really simple, but just a, a daily diet of yep. artists doing all kinds of different things and talking about it, I think is a really important way for them not to get a solipsistic. You know, it's like mm -hmm. you don't want them to get into high school and be saying, um, oh, I just make my art for me. It's not it's like, no, no, no. Art is a public discourse. <laughs> art mm -hmm. is about talking about it. So there's this um, thing that I do that I got from Julie Tool, and she got it from someone else. It's called the Artist Toolbox. And I kind of frame all of my introduction teacher demo things through that. So the toolbox is the mind. And in the toolbox, there's different things you can put in there. So as the teacher, I can give them a skill, like a skill builder, or I can give them a creativity challenge, or I could give them artist inspiration. Those are like the things that are in our toolbox that we talk about. So often I will share, and as I mentioned, I, I, I've talked about this in other uh, tabcasts, but I structure my curriculum in that all of my essential questions that we ask at the beginning of each class are framed on a studio habit. So like an artist, if I share an artist's inspiration is connected to a habit and we talk about like how they're practicing that habit and what it looks like. And so it, it, is definitely doable. And I think that there's not enough contemporary art in art education. Um, I don't know if it was oh, Connie, was it Connie? Someone gave, it was a Connie Stewart? That well, it's probably yeah. Julia Marshall or Olivia Goody, but Connie worked with Julia Marshall and Ann Fulson. And, you know, there are, there are a few, and Jess Hamlin and Joe Fuzaro, there are a few people who have really been emphasizing contemporary art uh, for teachers. Mm -hmm. Those are Connie and I know Julia that Connie wrote a, a Stewart book. And Julia Marshall with Ann Tolson. Yeah. Right. Great so, book. Another great book. Yeah. So now that we're kind of connected to it, um, where do you see the field of art education going? You know, I'm not sure. It's where it's going, but it's where I'd like to see it going. I would like to see serious artistic practice infused into all the disciplines. Um, I, I think you know contemporary artists are making art about 
science. They're making art about literature. They're making art about mathematics. They're making art about, you know, or they're making art about climate change, which is multidisciplinary. You have to have multiple disciplines in order to understand it. And I was just reading in Hyperallergic today or yesterday that there's a study that's just been done that shows that people are much more receptive to information about climate change when it's presented with art than they are if it's just presented as a scientific graph or something like that. So and isn't like that, that, I'll send you that, Ellen. It's really, it's really <laughs> interesting. Um, so I, I, think, um, what I, I think art has a huge power to open up and illuminate and engage people in discussion, reflection, and um, you know, new kinds of ways of thinking. And so that's what I would really like to see the field do. I don't want artistic practice, whether it's artistic practice in the classroom of a, in a studio classroom, or whether it's you know, a science teacher collaborating with an art teacher, or whether it's you know a big topic that the school's taking on and all the different disciplines are coming to it, or whether it's like Kimberly Dadamo sending her kids out, you know, I'm doing the giant squid if going to my math teacher. And if if you were doing the giant squid, what, how would you think about it? And the math teacher has a whole different way to think about the giant squid than the literature teacher or the history teacher or the sports teacher. Um, so it, at any rate. It's arts integration that I think is critical because I think art illuminates disciplinary thinking mm -hmm. and interdisciplinary thinking takes us deeper. Yeah, I, I could not have said that better. Um, it's not art integration in the old fashioned sense where you do use, a, use art to help social studies. This is artists incorporating other disciplines into their art and research into their art, just the way contemporary artists do. And I think uh, Julia Marshall has written about that very beautifully. Um, and it could be research about social justice because I know that there's a lot of emphasis on that now, but it needn't be. It's any kind of bringing together disciplines and making art about some big idea. So I don't, I would not like to see oral art education, oral art educators feel that art education, art, art, class has to be about social justice art. That's a choice. That's one art. That's one kind of art. But in, I'm in favor of any kind of artistic practice that is about big ideas that are meaningful to the student and that require a lot of thinking and research before the project is completed, which is really, I think, the kind of art integration that Lois was talking about. Yeah, that's, that's really, I'm, really excited to hear about that because that would be a very interesting thing to be able to do as a teacher to be able to kind of go in that direction. I'm thinking in terms of my third to fifth graders, I'm wondering what that would look like because many of mine, my students, I find that their attention spans are so very, very brief. And I think that they're somewhere along the way I would love to be able to like get them to stick with things a little bit longer. And I think that having them engaged in those ideas that they're passionate about will help to keep them there. You know, one that? of the things I think that people, um, that artists have done historically is they carry around sketchbooks. 
And they're constantly, if they go to a lecture, they jot down some images or some words or, or they doodle while they're listening or whatever. But then when they go there, they read a book and they jot something down or they hear something or then they do a bunch of experiments or, you know. So, I mean, this is what uh, Kimberly Dodano has been doing with Julia Marshall um, for years, this idea of having a research notebook at the center of practice and each kid has one and it becomes their own and she's got a particular way of doing it but it's she thinks of it as the spine of of the curriculum it holds the whole curriculum together and like our zoom mystery uses accordion books as her um as her research notebook and that's even neater because you can you know, as the accordion unfolds like this, you can, ex it's like, let's say we're talking about black holes here in this page, and then you're talking about um, butterflies here, and you're talking about uh, climate change over there. And it's like, oh, but then I heard something that reminded me of black, black holes. So now I add a page down below my page that folds back up into the book. So, and then I do some more things about black or about black holes. And then I have, anyway, so you end up with, you can open this book up and it becomes a map, a nonlinear map of your thinking on all these different topics. And I, I just think it's really important for kids to have something that holds all their thoughts together. And one of my students um, last year at Mass Art did this with third through fifth graders, well, with third graders. She was using uh, a tab structure and uh, research notebooks to try and get the kids to hold their ideas um, over time. You know, mm. and it's it's third grader level, but it's still yeah. it's still what you know. You're taking baby steps, right? You're trying to right. stretch their ability to return and return and return. Right. I'd also like to put yeah. in a plug for the Reggio Emilia approach of getting kids to work on a project in small groups. Mm -hmm. So they're all working mm -hmm. on the same project and doing research on it together. And um, I think that that might keep kids attention because they don't want to be the mm -hmm. one to think out when they're working with two or three other kids. Yeah. They keep themselves going. Yeah, and you yeah. can also have, even if they're not working on the, you know, let's say they have three different projects, but these three kids are a support group and they have a part of each class where they get together and they share their research notebooks with each other you know or they ask each other for help or whatever just a little just a little thing you know yeah yeah absolutely um well i i do want to make sure that we are um mindful of your time so i i would like to know if there's anything else that you feel is relevant to our audience that you think um, tab educators might want to uh, know before we wrap up today. Well, I would just like to thank you for giving us this opportunity to talk about the connections between tab and, and studio thinking and uh, to get to talk to your audience. So it's a real um, pleasure to be able to do that. It's exciting to have seen how tab teachers and the tab community has really embraced studio thinking and seen the naturalness of the connections between the practices of tabs and the intentions of studio thinking as a way of mapping what's going on, right. um, whether it's the kids mapping it or the teachers mapping it or colleagues mapping it or administrators or parents or whoever. But um, 
it, it, it has been a, a really nice marriage, I think. It's been very exciting to us. Yeah. Well, I mean, we would love to thank you both for being on um, Tab Storytellers. It was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Here. I'd love to hear, Abby, do you have any um, response to what you heard? Because we've heard so little from you. I'm going to turn my video off for a minute just so hopefully it comes better. I am thrilled by your guys' work. Um, I, having just done my dissertation around TAB um, and kind of where it's at and really looking at um, some areas for growth that TAB uh, could lean into, um, your guys' work with Studio Habits is really, I think, important to move forward with. Um, not necessarily, and that's one of the things Olivia Goody cautioned me. She's like, not everybody has to be tab, but also tab doesn't have to be everything else. And so I think that right. there, it is a nice marriage, but studio habits is a really beautiful framework for teaching that I think really is helpful to people who might need more structure than um, tab sometimes can afford to begin with kind of thing, or have a place to start with. And so um yeah, no, I'm, I am incredibly grateful for all the work that you guys have um, done and your contributions to art education as a whole have been immense and, and strengthened the tab practices in really amazing and important ways. And so um, I am really grateful for everything that you guys have, have brought to the, to the art education table. So thank oh, you. Really, really yeah, so pleased to hear that. It's very gratifying. It is very gratifying because it was hard work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Well, I am also very appreciative of your work and I'm big, a big fan of both of you and what you have both done. So thank you. Thank you for being on this, but they also thank you for what you have done for the field as well and for teachers. Thank you so much. Well, good luck thank with you. the end of school and Abby, good luck with your move and your transition yeah. to a new position. <laughs> Woo. Great place to be. You're in a great place to be. Excited, it'll be good to be part of that community. So, yeah, yeah, thank you guys yeah. for your understanding. So, okay. usually, one of the last things we do is we just mention um, that there is a place if you go to teachingfortisticbehavior.org, there's a little blue button in the top right corner where you can say join our community. And if you go there, um, you are able to join Mighty Networks, which is an online virtual community of art educators that is just devoted to um, teaching for artistic behavior. And it's a place where you can go find conversation and camaraderie and resources and all kinds of stuff. Um, so if you're listening to this and you're looking for more, then definitely go to that resource because I think it is um, definitely helpful for people. So thank you everybody for joining us um, for this tabcast and we'll be coming with you with another one in another uh, month or so. So enjoy your summers. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, all. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.